want to spend some time with you and the children. Are you crazy? The Tenenbaums have always been geniuses, but it will take a father like Royal. I want this family to love me. To make them a family. You probably don't even know my middle name. That's a trick question. You don't have one. Angelica Houston, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, Danny Glover, and Bill Murray. The Royal Tenenbaums. He also stole bonds out of my safety deposit box when I was 14. <laughs> Rated R. Now playing in select cities. Welcome back to another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? We continue our Wes Anderson exploration, and this week is uh, it's, uh, the doozy. It's the one a lot of people hold most dear in their uh, Wes Anderson knowledge or just praise. So uh, with me, as always, is my co-hosted friend, Josh Page. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for another lovely introduction. That was really oh. something. I completely forgot. The name of the movie is The Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. For those of you who have not caught on and have read the title. Uh, the title is, of the episode. The title of the episode is the same title of the film, The Royal Tenenbaums. We've made it. We've finally made it in such a short amount of time uh, in what many would consider uh, Wes Anderson's magnum opus, uh, you know, not me, not me necessarily, or maybe me, but I'm not. I'm gonna save my surprises for later. But yeah. uh, this is the first big one, I would say. To spoil just some news later, it, the budget was 21 million dollars, and it made uh, 71.4 million dollars. So it wasn't like a big hit when it came out, but it was one of those movies that just grew a cult following and the following grew and grew with Wes Anderson because everyone caught on to Wes Anderson at a certain point and everyone was like, dude, you got to see this movie, The Royal Tenenbaums. That's like the best one he's ever made. You know, it's built up a status throughout like an underground uh, tunnel of Wes Anderson uh, projects. You know what I mean? Um Absolutely. And I, I'll say... Like Fantastic Mr. Fox. This movie's just like been crawling through the ground, making it um, through people. It's making its way in and out of all people everywhere. Um, I once had someone describe it to me, and I'll save like the deep dive on the thoughts in, for the final thoughts. But someone once described this movie to me as the most Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson movie ever made. And that's kind of always stuck with me when I watch this because it's like, not only are most of his signature tropes here, but it just, it captures almost anything you could want to describe about the qualities of his filmmaking in a, a, a less than a two hour runtime. You know, it's, it's definitely one of his most intimate projects, I would say. Rare. I feel like after watching this movie, I would understand, I, I understand Wes Anderson as a person more. Oh, for sure. You this feel movie like speaks hearing... more about who he is, like, I mean, partially because he wrote it, but, you know, I feel like I understand his childhood and home life to a new extent I didn't previously. Right. Between uh, Rushmore, 
and this as like bookends because we just had talked about Rushmore last week and then talking about this it really feels kind of like a double hitter of um almost like an ode to him his past or his family or this whole idea of of growing up you know what I mean like this whole like we said last week like he captures nostalgia and everything he does in ways that can't really be explained but it's like this feels like you said it's personal in the sense that it feels like it's come from it feels like it's coming from him what's happening no I was just laughing because this time it's personal (laughs) this and this time is personal you've seen Rushmore now the Royal Tenenbaums this time it's personal that's that was the tagline (laughs) (laughs) I forgot that's the Jaws 4 tagline I don't know if we had it on record that we talked about Jaws 4 that um but yes uh, it feels like it's his most personal um and because everything after this kind of feels like he's exploring different territories but it feels like it comes from his a rip from his own life and that's it's it's pretty cool Um, i agree so uh do you want to tell us how you first came to the movie to trail off of when i think we did our first episode for wes anderson i had said that my family had rented this movie when it came out because they had heard rave reviews about it and it was billed as a comedy. My family was into a lot more slapstick. Um, we had watched it. It wasn't really clicking with them. And I kind of just wrote it off like, Oh yeah, this is a very strange quirky movie. And, and that was when it had first come out um, or shortly after it had first it had come out. And then it wasn't until, I mean, that was the first time I had seen it and I barely remembered. I just kind of remember how my family was reacting to it. And then it was really in college when I got into him where um, I had said to you last week that um, I got into his filmography kind of out of order. I was, I did not watch them in sequential order. This was the movie that when I had gone back to watch, um, this was the time that it hit me where I was like, Oh, this is, and it was, again, I was in college and it hit me and I was like, Oh, I, I think I finally get the hype because I had seen great things from him. I had seen snippets like you with Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's like, well, this is, there's something very creative going on here. But this was the first movie of his that I had watched. And I was like, oh, this, this just makes sense. This just makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't remember really where I was. I think I was just by myself in my home when I had just, I don't know if it was on my laptop or I would, computer or I would watch movies a lot with headphones. Um, and I just, I always. I didn't necessarily lie i told the truth from a certain point of view when we talked about wes anderson initially like the first full feature i watched of his from start to finish was fantastic mr fox however on an airplane once i came across the royal tenenbaums and i watched like gwyneth paltrow and luke wilson like his it went from his suicide attempt to um like the tent scene and I would, like, out of context, I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, did this guy literally just fuck his sister? <laughs> and I had no, like, I, I didn't really, I didn't know what movie it was, so I didn't know how to find it. But then, obviously, I watched Fantastic Mr. Fox, and going through uh, the filmography, uh, I rewatched the movie, and it made a lot more sense the second time I watched it. But, uh, yeah, so... The second time I watched it, I was probably in high school, and I feel like 
the second time watching it is just not as entertaining as my first time watching the first 20, the last 20 minutes of the movie. <laughs> I enjoy that you dropped that, that line of the sister um, for a second time. That was, you had made that comment last week because that, that's your reaction. That's how you initially saw this guy. It's like, what is wrong with this guy? He's, you know. I just like don't understand. I, you know, I watched all eight seasons of Game of Thrones, you know. Incest, I just, I don't get it. And it seems to be like in. I don't know why. It's just very weird. Uh, you get incest vibes from uh, which which films? From this one? From, from Royal Tenenbaums? Yeah, definitely from this one. And I'm just talking gen, like the public at large. I feel like there's like a whole new like incest thing going on. And I, I, I don't I, approve. It's not necessarily a direct incest. I think this dates back for me. It was like Arrested Development being like, oh, this is strange. There's a character who's in love with his cousin. But, and then it always comes back to this whole idea that they're not actually blood related. Is how I feel like it goes. Because it's this question of, would you still, you know, fuck your sister or your cousin if they weren't your actual sister or your cousin? And yeah. I feel like that's what a lot of like comedy plays with. But to um, me, you know, incest more often than not plays like if you want to keep going with the rest of development it's kind of like when uh what's her face Lindsay and michael make out it's like it's gross to me of course it's weird you want to talk about pre-production and production i would love to so pre-production uh wes anderson said that the original idea was to make a film about a family of geniuses but as time went on and him and owen wilson wrote the script it became less about the genius part and more about the actual family. Yeah. I can I can see that because they're all over, all the characters are overachievers, you know, in their yeah. own way. But even like the way the movie plays out, it starts off with saying these three are geniuses, and then toward as the movie goes on, you're watching them, and they're not really like showing exuding their genius. There's even that line that uh, Royal and Mario have where he said, aren't you supposed to be some kind of genius or something? And she says, I was never a genius. I think it's more of um, that they hold themselves to such higher standards than most of society. Like, they all feel very snooty, like, hanging their noses in the air a little bit. Like, they're kind of, like, they're special. And, and I think it's more of just how they carry themselves more than the fact that they're actually supposed to be genius characters. And obviously that affects each of them individually. So uh, they filmed in New York. Uh, yep. They shot the hotel at the Waldorf Astoria. They shot at the Central Park Zoo. The U.S. Navy training ship was, that's the ship where uh, uh, Luke Wilson's character was on, Richie. And the actual house was shot in uh, Sugar Hill in Hamilton Heights, um, a section of Harlem. So it's funny you say that it's shot in New York because um, I have the trivia pulled up and it says, um, Al although the exteriors were largely shot in New York, Anderson intentionally avoided virtually all shots of skyscrapers or other distinctive New York City landmarks. When Royal and Pagoda are talking Battery Park on the southern tip of Manhattan, Anderson intentionally had Kumar Payana uh, stand directly in front of the Statue of Liberty so that it would not show up in the shot. That's funny. That's amazing. Because yeah. you, you almost don't realize it until you think about it and you're like, oh yeah, it's clearly New York, but it's also like not directly, you know? So the Dalmatian mice 
that Chaz created. Yeah. The mice became Dalmatian because they literally sharpied the mice. <laughs> That's really funny. It's really funny. <laughs> um, during production, Anderson gave his uh, mother's photo to Angelica Houston. Like he would send pictures of his mom continuously to Wesley, uh, to Angelica Houston. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah, because she, uh, backstory, uh, Wes Anderson's parents got divorced, and after his parents' divorce, his mother became an archaeologist the same way that uh, Angelica Houston's Ethelene uh, Tenenbaum becomes an archaeologist. So apparently, um, while they were filming, like the bird that they first used for Mordecai when they released it, it was uh, caught by a it was caught by someone in New Jersey. Like someone in New Jersey got the bird and held it for ransom. Horrible. <laughs> and instead of giving it to the ransom, they just replaced the bird. Uh, yeah, apparently the bird that appears later in the movie has more white feathers because it's a totally different bird. It's <laughs> hilarious. That's an that sounds like a plot that would be in this movie. It sounds like Seven Psychopaths. <laughs> oh, it's a great movie. I haven't um, watched that movie like since theaters. What was that, 2012, 2013? Yeah, that's exactly what they do. They keep the dog for ransom. So apparently uh, Anderson and Houston had a tense relationship with Hackman. Oh, I heard about that. Anderson was just very intimidated by him, and Houston just did not care for him. Apparently, on the first day, Hackman and Houston had a scene together. She had to slap him, and she hit him really hard. She, quote, I hit him a really good one. I saw the imprint of my hand on his cheek and thought, he's going to kill me. Um, apparently, uh, according to Anderson, there were moments where Gene Hackman was so difficult to work with that... Uh, according to Angelica Houston, that Bill Murray even showed up on his days off to watch over Anderson during his time working with Hackman. <laughs> like just everyone was just kind of monitoring this guy. That's crazy. You know, watching this movie, it makes me miss Gene Hackman, but like, you know, you don't have to be a dick on set. You know, I, I understand why a lot of people are not pushing for his retirement to end. Um, I, I was going to say, I feel like I've heard multiple instances of him being more difficult, um, to work with, but even in an instance like this, like, um, I'm not necessarily condoning the behavior, but it's also, I mean, he, a role like this, um, if suits him perfectly, you know what I mean? Like he, mm -hmm. he nails the part of just the grumpy old man. Cause it's kind of just, it almost plays into who he is. There, like, there's a, it, it almost feels like there's a part of him in there for real, you know? It's interesting you said grumpy because I feel like Royal isn't grumpy. I feel like he's very jovial. He's just very, like he has a spring in his step to, I, I don't know. Like He does. I just kind of see him as like the annoyed grandfather. He's kind of just, I feel like he's, he's like depressed. I almost feel like he had other, I mean, the character writes itself, you know what I mean? It's kind of, he had his hopes and aspirations and it's kind of just like, that's how he kind of feels like someone who's going towards the final phase of his life where he's just kind of just, I don't know if he's regretful or he's kind of just resentful or it's so my mind just goes to be more me. Of a grumpy. Grumpy. 
no right but my mind just that's immediately just the grumpy old man is um yeah so uh last note i have is that uh margo margo's birthday scene angelica houston's hair caught on fire and the person who put it out was was kumar oh wow that's really funny and he put it out before like any serious damage could be done to houston or the set or anyone like anything wow that's but um that's, that's amazing that's a terrifying uh i can't even imagine that's no, terrifying um i'll say to cap it off the top trivia note is that apparently the hand that is seen with the baby lodged between the knuckles is not ben stiller's hand but andrew wilson's owen and luke wilson's brother when they were children owen fired a bb gun at andrew's hand and the bb has been there ever since jesus i didn't think that was like even possible yeah, I I really thought that was something they just pulled for the movie. That's, I mean, that makes that fact a lot cooler, I guess. But it's also yeah. like, why don't you get that removed? All right, um, let's do this thing. Let's go for it. Just like the classic original Disney animated films, the film begins with the opening of a book, simply named The Royal Tenenbaums. As an orchestral rendition of Hey Jude kicks in, so does Alec Baldwin's narration. Now I'm going to attempt Baldwin's voice. Royal Tenenbaum bought the house on Archer Avenue in the winter of his 35th year. We pan down on the city mansion and see a man at the front door. The scene switches to a dining room. At one end of the table is Royal Tenenbaum. At the other, at the end of it are his three children, Chaz, Richie, and Margot. In a classic Wes Anderson dark and witty conversation, we learn that Royal is leaving the house, but is unsure if this will lead to divorce. They were never legally divorced. That, that's like a predecessor to like Arrested Development right there. I was there, just going to say, that's, seen one. that's pure Ron Howard. Yeah. Is it, uh, our, Development. Is it our fault? Well, uh, because of you, we had definitely had to make concessions to our lives. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. The interjecting narration, because narration, I think, can often, like, I think narration can often hurt films and TV shows because it's being too, um, it's, as you would put, an exposition dump. It's too explanatory. Um, but when it's humorous like this, much like Arrested Development, it's really, it really works because it creates kind of the unreliable narrator, you know? Yeah, I agree. Cut to Ethelene Tenenbaum, Angelica Houston, who we learned became an archaeologist after Royal left. She also raised the kids with an emphasis on education. She even wrote a book on her children titled Family of Geniuses. Through the narrator, we learn who each of the kids are. Chaz Tenenbaum had since elementary school taken most of his meals in his room, standing up at his desk with a cup of coffee to save time. In the sixth grade, he went into business breeding Dalmatian mice, which he sold to a pet shop in Little Tokyo. He started buying real estate in his early teens and seemed to have an almost preternatural understanding of international finance. He negotiated the purchase of his father's summer house on Eagles Island. On Eagle Island, we see Chaz, Richie, Eli Cash, James Fitzgerald, whom we will come to know soon, and Royal playing with BB guns. Royal, who is on Chaz's team, shoots him. The BB is still lodged between Chaz's knuckles. The... Um, the opening of this is great and how they just kind of go through um, 
all the kids and they do it in what very West Anderson style, the center frames, how they move the names over in the corners. Um, Absolutely. It's, an, it's a great setup. It's cause it's just, it explains everything in the beginning about who, what, everything we need to know about them. So that the rest of the movie can just play out with the knowledge that we have. Like you're brought into the family this way. Yeah. You're, you're being told like, this is their past, so like you're part of their past. Now explore their future. Margot Tenenbaum was adopted at age two. Her father had always noted this when introducing her. This is my adopted daughter, Margot Tenenbaum. Royal was a fucking dick to her. It's no wonder that Richie may have seen her not as his sister if she has been constantly reminded, with Richie often at her side, that like they're not related not that I'm justifying their incest, but like, you know, I can no, see where the confusion comes from psychologically. I was going to say what this movie does is it creates a lot of um, what would be a means for like family counseling in terms of like the psychological effects that each of these characters have because of how they were brought up, because of this intense upbringing of just here's how our family operates and here's how, here's your role in this family. You know, like they're very told, they're almost like instructed on how to behave. You know what I mean? It's a reason that the, I, the whole idea of the family of geniuses is they come from this expectation that they act and behave a certain way. And Margot's role is often, like you just said, repeatedly told, oh, you're adopted. You know what I mean? It's almost like that is her character. She was a playwright and won a Braverman grant of $50,000 in the ninth grade. She and her brother Richie ran away from home one winter and camped out in the African wing of the public archives. They shared a sleeping bag and survived on crackers and root beer. Four years later, Margot disappeared alone for two weeks and came back with half a finger missing. Richie Tenenbaum had been a champion tennis player since the third grade. turned pro at 17 and won the U.S. Nationals three years in a row. He kept the studio in the corner of the ballroom, but had failed to develop as a painter. On weekends, Royal took him on outings around the city. These invitations were never extended to anyone else. Richie's best friend, Eli Cash, lived with his aunt in a building across the street. He was a regular fixture at family gatherings, holidays, mornings before school, and most afternoons. We then see Margot's 11th birthday party. The family is putting on the play that Margot had written, but Royal tells Margot it doesn't seem believable. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, so disrespectful. As the party starts singing happy birthday margot goes to her room royal has not been invited to any family function since years have passed and we are reintroduced to the characters in wes anderson title card fashion royal is at the spa light lighting up a cigarette as his face mask is taken off etheline is putting a pencil in her hair Chaz, ben stiller now and his two sons Ari, Grant, Rosenmeyer, and Uzi, Jonah, Meyerson, both Myers in their names. Interesting. Uh, they're at the gym shaving. I don't know why the kids are shaving, but hey. You know, That's a good little bit. It is. 
Margot Gwyneth Paltrow is getting her hair and nails done. Eli Cash, Owen Wilson, is trying on a new cowboy hat. Bryla St. Clair, Bill Murray, who's amazing in this movie. He's so good. Is brushing his teeth and speaking into a voice recorder. Henry Sherman, Danny Glover, is putting a pocket square in his pocket. Richie, Luke Wilson, holds up a camera and takes a picture, possibly of the audience. It's very uh, jarring. It's good. I like it. Chapter two. Royal is at the Lindenberg Palace Hotel, where, where he has lived for the last 22 years. But as we find out, the years have not been kind to Royal. He was a prominent litigator, but was disbarred, thanks to Chaz. Royal was also briefly imprisoned. He has not spoken to a single family member for over three years. And now Royal is broke. He must leave the hotel. I love this reoccurring thing of like hotels and his uh, it's good. stuff. I mean, we'll talk yeah. about it more later because obviously when they get to the elevator boy, you know, like uh, they get into Grand Budapest uh, uh, territory. Uh, 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 yeah, I mean, they can't help you. They, you can't help but cross them over a little bit. But it's, and I'll save all my thoughts on it for when we get to Budapest. But it's, um, I feel like he uses hotel specifically as a, as commentary on like it being this third party structure that he can kind of um, peer peer into other people's lives. You know what I mean? Like they're completely different iterations of style and. And mystery, and I don't know. I think there's a lot. He clearly has a fascination with the idea of yeah, a hotel. I, but that goes back to like literally silent, like early, early, like Lumineer Brothers silent film where they're like, absolutely. I forget the name of it, but there's the one with the keyhole. Like yep. it was like supposed to be in a hotel, and you're looking through literal keyholes into people's rooms. And that's why I want to save the thoughts for the bigger thoughts for Budapest because it's you really feel it when you watch that. You want to save your grand thoughts for the Budapest Hotel? Richie we find on a boat. The voyage has been going on for a year and plans to take him from the North to South Pole. He's still wearing the headband. Richie is dictating a letter to his best friend Eli. Quote, Dear Eli, I'm in the middle of the ocean. I haven't left my room in four days. I've never been more lonely in my life, and I think I'm in love with Marco. Which, why are you saying this? <clears throat> Eli is now a big author. We find him reading the passage from his new book on General Custer to an audience. Margot is in the bathroom, uh, painting her toenails and smoking. There's a knock on the door. It is her husband, Riley, who is a writer slash neurologist. Before she lets him in to the room, she turns on a fan and pumps perfume into the air. Margot was married to the writer and neurologist Raleigh Sinclair. She was known for her extreme secrecy. For example, none of the Tenenbaums knew she was a smoker, which she had been since the age of 12. Nor were they aware of her first marriage and divorce to a recording artist in Jamaica. She kept a private studio in Mockingbird Heights under the name Helen Scott. She had not completed a play in seven years. So she's um, become a bit of an overachiever. Just a little bit. Um, I will say in watching this again, I think this might be my favorite Gwyneth Paltrow performance. I mean, it's between this and Shallow Hal. I mean, I just really... Um, I 
I feel like I definitely agree about this movie. I, I'm trying to think of her movies. That's what that noise was, me trying to think of her movies. But this honestly might be her best performance. I, I mean, she does don't. great in a, in a fat suit, and you know, a little bit at the end, but just playing the idea of a, of a fat person and she's in great shape is, you know, it works for the slapstick, the slapstick of the Farley Brotherhood. Thing. I was thinking of what she won her Oscar for, <laughs> Shakespeare in Love, and I'm like... Yeah, uh, definitely not in that movie. I can see why people would would buy it, of course, but um, I don't know. This role, uh, she just captures this, um, the the personality of depression in a, a frighteningly realistic way. Like yeah. it's like she's very caught in this because she feels very emotionless and very void. And some people may think it find it kind of boring, but I just I just see someone who's content with like being depressed. That's how I see it. The word you used was void, and I feel like that's her whole personality. She's just a void. Whenever she's on, like, she's just a void that captures your attention because you're, like, captured by the nothingness that she's presenting. I don't know. Right. She does it really well. I just really, I, it hit me this time. I never really had that thought. When I watched it this time, I thought that this is probably my favorite performance of hers. Chaz, like the rest of his siblings, is not in a good spot. His wife died in a plane crash. His two sons, Ari and Uzi, and the dog Buckley, were also on the plane, but they survived. Over the last six months, he has been running countless drills with his sons to ensure their safety, though he is disappointed with the four-minute and 48-second escape, which, I, I don't know, this seems pretty good to me. There's only one of me, and I'd probably be out in five, seven, five to seven minutes. Um... It's funny because a lot of his shots are known to be, Western shots are known to be still frame and steady and on a tripod. And that scene where he's racing him through the clock is all handheld. handheld. So it's really funny because it actually feels as chaotic as the moment it's being presented. It's just, it's good. It's a good It's jarring for him. Ethelene is in her office writing. Next to her is the family accountant, Henry. He proposes to her. She needs to think it over. Overhearing the conversation is the family butler, Pagoda, Kumar Palana. Pagoda, still loyal to Royal, tells him, Royal is not happy, saying, quote, I do not like the sound of this one damn bit, Pagoda. I mean, Lord knows, I have, Lord knows I've had my share of infidelities, but she's still my wife. Good introduction, reintroduction. He's hilarious to me. Yeah, I agree. Just like it's the audacity of like, He's stealing my wife. You haven't spoken to her in what seventeen years? It's so funny. It's such a funny delivery. I love it. It's like I said before. It's like really the setting up of the characters is is brilliant. Gene Hackman, I, he may have been a very big pain in the ass on set, but his performance in this movie might be one of my favorites of his as well. Like that's that's yeah, that's what I was saying. Is like it like depending whatever he was doing. I mean, it's just it works for his character in this. He just, he nails this role. Yeah, absolutely. Chapter three. One night as Ethelene is throwing a poker party, Chaz and the boys walk in carrying bags. Chaz tells his mother they cannot stay at their own apartment as it is not safe. There are no sprinklers. Ethelene tells Chaz that this house doesn't have sprinklers either. The kids load up into Chaz's old bedroom. I just want to start that line though, like the line delivery of like, but Chaz, there's no 
sprinkler scare either. <laughs> and Ben Stiller's like, we'll have to change that too. I have to get some new sprinklers and a backup security system installed. But there are no sprinklers here either. Well, we might have to do something about that too. I love it. I just love how adamant he is uh, about that. I just um, loved her like, like every now and then she has this moment of like, because this is not the last time she has this, you know, later on in the movie, mm-hmm. when she finds out Margot smokes, she's like, well, I think you should quit. <laughs> you know, like there are these it's just a, moments of like complete very, sincerity and outlandish. Like this is like not what you should be thinking at the moment, but you're just so overwhelmed that you're like, um, I think you should stop smoking. I th- it's a, like, it's there a, are no sprinklers <laughs> here either. Like pointing out the obvious. It's a very matter of delivery of the direct thought. Like you had just said, it's just, it's exactly what's on her mind at that, at that moment, even if it's inappropriate. It's kind of just, and it's funny because it never feels like it's too overly emotionally charged. It's still that same monotone kind of like worried delivery, but it's also um, just enough to be direct, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, it's good. She's good in this. Yeah, um, yeah. As we're talking about all the characters, I think I, I don't know. I, I this whole as far as ensemble goes, this is they just they kind of nail it. Everyone is incredible in their roles. Yeah, everyone is like at the top of their game. Um, the kids load up into Chaz's old bedroom with the kids in a bunk bed and Chaz on the floor in a sleeping bag. At the doctor's office, Royal's being told about some unknown ailment that will cause dizziness and possible seizures. Oh, the doctor was the math teacher in Rushmore. That's so funny. I was going to say, because I knew that that guy looked familiar. I don't know if he reappears in other of Western Sinsels or I've just seen him I in other remember. things. But the look. To, I'm keeping my eye out for him in the next couple of movies. That's good. That's good. Ethelene goes to Margot's house at Raleigh's re- request. Margot now spends six hours a day in the bathroom. After learning Chaz is back at the house, Margot decides to go back as well. As the Charlie Brown theme kicks in, Margot and Ethelene get into a dingy cab, leaving Raleigh. Margot, back in her old room, finds Eli in his underpants in the closet. They have been having an affair. Yeah. Ethelene, leaving the family home, is jumped by Royal. To garner sympathy, Royal tells Ethelene that he is dying. Then to cheer her up, he tells her he is not dying. She hits him repeatedly. And to gain back the sympathy, Royal tells her he is dying. The family, Rich included, are all back under the same roof again after 17 years. Yeah, that scene um, is another one where it's just hilarious. She, like, you know, you break down. Like, someone just told you they're fucking dying. Like, whether you like them or not, like, this man has technically, like, he's been your husband on paper for, what, 30-something years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, obviously she's going to be depressed. And then, like, just the smoothness, he's like, I'm not really dying. <laughs> no, no, I am dying. I am dying. Like, it's that, yeah, it's that Wes Anderson humor where it's like, it's funny, but it's very, um, it's it's still subtle enough, but it's still like, I, I don't know, I can't explain it. It's not overt, it's not slapstick. It's just a kind of like overtly um, uh, comical in the way that he does his quirky humor. Wait a second. Okay, uh, listen, I'm not dying. <laughs> But I need some time, a month or so. Okay, I want us. I want us to to. to, 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 to 
Assault? Are you crazy? I thought maybe I am dying. Chapter four. Royal gets out of a shitty cab, which I don't know why all the cabs in these move in this movie are really disgusting. I really wanted hit up that old New York look. I guess. And also, Royal didn't pay for that cab. He just got out and shut the door. So I don't know what happened there either. The children congregate with their father, Richie and Margo on the couch while Chaz is in the corner flipping through a book. Royal tells his children that he wants to make things right over over his final six weeks. First, Royal wants to take everyone to the cemetery to visit his mother. Richie says he hasn't been there for six years. Margot says she's never been there. Royal then coldly reminds Margot that is because she is adopted. Chaz gets pissed and storms out when Royal forgets not only that Rachel, Chaz's wife, is buried in the cemetery, but crudely says, quote, well, we'll have to swing by her grave too. (laughs) (laughs) So disrespectful. Literally, let's, yeah, let's just swing by her grave. Royal follows Chaz because he wants to meet his grandkids. Chaz says, no way. Eli, driving with Margo, drops the bomb that Richie is in love with her. Eli stops his car to presumably pick up drugs. Meanwhile, at a dig site, Ethelene is talking to Henry. Henry apologizes for proposing, saying he knows she has had other suitors. In classic Wes Anderson film structure, we cut to these seemingly important people. Literally, it's like a little montage of just people with names that I didn't catch. Ethelene says the problem is that she hasn't slept with a man in 18 years. Does that mean she slept with women? (laughs) She literally specifically said, I haven't slept with a man in 18 years. Royal, disobeying Chaz, finds his grandchildren at the gym. They work out 16 times a week under their father's orders, which is a lot. That's like aggressive. (laughs) Royal works his charm and tells the kids how to coax their father into meeting him. Ari tells his father, quote, I think mom would have wanted us to meet him before he died. Don't you think? That was like a stroke of genius by uh, by Royal. It was like, and that whole scene is hilarious. I love it. It's literally like, uh, but we've already met you. No. You haven't. (laughs) Yeah, it works perfectly for these characters. Title card. Maddox Hill Cemetery. The family is visiting Royal's mother, uh, Helen Tenenbaum. Royal lays a bouquet at the gravesite. As Chaz walks to see Rachel, Royal reaches back down and hands him half of the flowers. (laughs) Which is like such an insult. On so many so, levels. So disrespectful. Yeah, so disrespectful. Ari and Uzi with Margot asks how she lost her finger. Turns out her real father in Indiana chopped it off by accident while chopping wood. The kids asked if she tried to get it reattached. She simply replies, wasn't worth it. <laughs> okay. This is definitely her best performance. I take it back. Yeah, I do. I do love it. It's Richie, so monotone and so dialed back. Sorry. It's just very, it's very dialed back and it's just, it works because it's not expressive or outwardly in your face, you know? I agree. Richie and Royal talk about Richie's last tennis match. On television, on a television screen, we see the match play out. 
Richie takes off his shoes and socks, even sits on the field. The reason for his implosion becomes known as the cameras move to Marco, who got married to Riley the day before. Royal, still trying to break through with Chaz, talks to him by Rachel's grave. Chaz wants to know why Royal shot him as a kid. Royal tells him to get over it, following up by saying he never held it against Chaz for getting him disbarred and, su and suing him twice. Although, in my uh, experience, if someone has to, like, you know, say, I'm not bitter about X, Y, and Z, that means they're bitter about what yeah. happened. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see how everyone's kind of very angry or, or resentful or um, it's just very, it's just, it's just, everyone feels very rude. But I guess it's also, that's the whole point is this is the first time they've been together in, under one roof in 17 years. Um, and so it's just funny, all these little um, inklings of who they are is, is clashing with each other. I also um, feel like there's a level of comp. There would have had to have been like a level of competition amongst the kids growing up. Absolutely. You know, if there are three geniuses, then like they're not really, a, you know, sure they grew up with each other, but like they grew up knowing each other as a competition, not as like siblings. Right. Like I got to get mom and dad's affection. And dad was like a lost cause, except to Richie, because he could play the sports. Yeah, know. it's no, it's it, it plays. I mean, the dynamics play in uh, really well in terms of them being competitive and all that. And uh, anyway, Richie and Margot also talk briefly. Margot tells Richie that Eli told her about his letter. I also apologize for how much of a like high school conversation that sentence sounded like. Margot tells <laughs> Richie that Eli told her about his letter. Margot then drops the cigarette, but denies that it is hers. Richie goes to visit Eli, who is all doped up on mescaline. Eli says it is weird that Richie loves his sister. Richie reminds Eli she is adopted. <laughs> I think that's why they keep uh, bringing it up, you know? Yeah. But in the moments when I needed it to know, like that they weren't blood related, is the are the moments I did not know when watching it on that plane ride. <laughs> um, it's yeah, there. It's unapologetic. It's very. Um, it's here to stay. You know, there's the weird incest theme is. It's only going to get weirder. <laughs> to quote uh, Bob's Burgers, filth. <laughs> That's what that's from. Oh, I know you were saying that even when we were working together. I never know. That it's was, uh, Edith from Bob's Burgers. Uh, it's another show that uh, you have to get around to. Yeah, that show's one, funny. One of these years. One of these years. <laughs> one of these right. days. A lot one of, of these years. A lot of years. The family, with the exception of Royal, is meeting at the dining room table. Richie is vouching for Royal, saying he thinks Royal is lonely. Everyone discusses if Royal should move back in but Richie says it is too late. Chaz, as hot-headed as ever, goes to the room to try and get Royal to leave. In the room, Royal has a stretcher, heart monitor, and all other sorts of medical equipment. While Chaz tries to get Royal out, Royal falls to the floor. For show, he puts a wooden spoon in his mouth. This man <laughs> knows what he's doing. He knows. This is a man who knows what he's doing. Dr. McClure, I'm Troy McClure. 
<laughs> I'm Joy McClure. Dr. McClure, a.k.a. Dusty Seymour. You might remember me from such films as The Royal <laughs> Tenenbaums. Oh, man. Oh, pour one out. Um, Dr. McClure, a.k.a. Dusty Seymour Castle. The hotel bellboy shows up. The doctor tells the family that Royal needs fluids. Royal proceeds to eat a cheeseburger and Henry sees. Maybe to try and compensate, Chaz in his own caring way turns the lights out on his father at 11.30 p.m. Or mid-sentence as Royal was reading. Yeah, that was good. I mean, in in Chaz's own way, that was touching. But Mm -hmm. it was also like a vindictive touchiness. Like, yeah, I'm turning it off because I love you. But also like the fact that I'm turning it off mid-sentence brings me joy. And if that doesn't say family, what does? It really, it really, it's, they, they nail it. Um, the next morning as Royal flicking out his cigarette sees Eli climbing out of Margot's window. Royal shouts, I know you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. Everyone's so rude and so crass. I picked up on it watching it, but like even just going through it, I'm like, it's so good. Um, Margot having breakfast with Ethelene notices Eli's writing clippings. Apparently, Eli has been sending Ethelene his work for many years. Ethelene thinks he likes the encouragement. Raleigh walks to the window and knocks to get Margot's attention. That was Raleigh, like brilliant staging. He literally yeah. like he just <laughs> like crouches next to them and knocks on the window. It's good. The framing is good. All of it. It's just oh man, you can really feel it in full swing. It's just the shots, the way he does his frames his camera work. It's really it comes to fruition here. Um, Raleigh asks Margot if she's coming home. She says she does not think so. In classic Bill Murray deadpan, Raleigh says, well, I want to die. <laughs> um, deadpan, not the way Josh did it, where he laughed at her. No, no, Classic no. deadpan. Classic, I, I, I can't. Um, I feel like this is like a ex- very exaggerated version of who Bill Murray could potentially be. Just this whole, it's its so relaxed, but it's so dark and so, like you said, deadpan. It's just. Well, I want to die. Um, as Margot comes back in the house, Royal yells at her about how unfairly she is treating Raleigh. On the roof, while Richie cleans his old falcon's cage, Raleigh tells him that Margot might be having an affair. Richie shatters glass and cuts his hand. Royal watching Chaz's uptight nature. Royal watching Chaz's uptight nature feels the kids need to be a little more reckless. A montage plays of Royal, Ari, and Uzi on a day out. Running and jumping into a pool, jaywalking across the street, horseback riding, go-kart, go-karting, throwing water balloons at cabs, riding on the back of garbage trucks, and going to a dog fight. Notably, the last activity is horrible. Like, I get it. It's like a joke, but it's also like... Uh, it's like... Yeah. We're lucky John Wick isn't in this movie. <laughs> it's true. This is a real, a real thing people do. Um, Royal also tells the kids the story of how he came to know Pagoda. Back in the day, Pagoda saved Royal's life by carrying him to the hospital. Though it was Pagoda that stabbed Royal in the first place. Or stabbed him in the back? Uh, oh, no, it's literally no, stabbed it's him. literally stabbed him. I was going to say. Uh, though it was Pagoda that stabbed Royal in the first place. Irate, Chaz pulls Royal into the closet and tells him to stay away from Ari and Uzi. The next day, Royal and Ethelene go for a walk. 
the conversation is one of those heavy conversations about remorse, but with the enlightened charm of knowing it is time to let go. Watching this meaningful walk is Henry behind a tree. Chapter six. Henry is at his wit's end with Royal. Ethelene is avoiding dates with him, and the final straw is reached when Royal calls him Coltrane, which I don't blame him for getting pissed about. That's not nice. Henry looks at Royal's medication to find that his pills are simply Tic Tacs. As Royal and Margot watch Eli on, t- on the TV, the family is called together in Royal's room. Everyone, including Pagoda, is around the Royal's bed, with the exception of Margot, who, as usual, is staged by the door. I don't know if you picked up on that, but like every time there's a family gathering or a family meeting, uh, Margot is always like in a corner. She's never like part of the family. She's, she's always off in, on like, her own. Off on her own. Unless yeah. she's with, literally with Richie in that one earlier scene with uh, when Royal comes back. I think subconsciously I was picking up on it because again, like going into the idea of her being like depressed or falling to this character of just, you know, like I said earlier, being void. It just goes into this idea that even with family, even literally being in the same room, she still tries to distance herself as much as possible. Yeah. Um, it plays well into her character. Henry then breaks the news that Royal has been faking his illness, noting his wife passed from stomach cancer and she did not go out eating cheeseburgers. Royal, not fighting back, simply goes into the bathroom and changes into a suit. I love the casualness of that, too. It's so good. Chaz quickly and seemingly gladly calls a cab. Royal, before he leaves, tells the family, quote, Look, I know I'm going to be the bad guy on this one. No shit. But I just want to say the last six days have been the best six days of probably my whole life. The narrator kicks in. Quote, immediately after making the statement, Royal realized that it was true. Ethelene asks why Royal did it. He says that to get her back. And he's broke. And he got kicked out of his hotel. Rough stuff for Royal. Rough stuff for Royal. It's been a rough couple of days. <laughs> Margot and Richie walk Royal to the cab, trying to appeal to Richie. He says, quote, you know, Richie, this illness, this, col- this closeness to death has a profound effect on me. I feel like a different person. I really do. Richie replies, Dad, you are never really dying. Before Margot follows Richie into the house, Royal also reminds her that Henry is not her father. Marco, after years of being reminded she's adopted, coldly, coldly states, neither are you. Pakoda then stabs Royal again. Royal exclaims, this is the last time. Rough stuff for Royal. Um, we're obviously entering the downfall of the character uh, before the, you know, his third act, uh, yeah. Redemption, or... Well, this is definitely his uh, rock bottom. It's not the rock bottom of the film, but it is his rock bottom. Yeah, every major character needs to hit that point. Royal and Pagoda are staying at the 375th Street Y. Royal wants the family to love him again. Pagoda reminds Royal that this is all his fault. They quickly realize they have no money. They apply for a jib at the Lindenberg Palace Hotel as elevator boys, which will come back in the Grand Budapest Hotel. 
Margot and Eli meet on a bridge to break up. Both of them admit that they never loved each other. But across There's another street, hilarious scene. It's just like, I never loved you. Well, I never loved you. Um, <laughs> like I said in, in one of the first episodes we did of this, is that it's delivering serious dialogue in a funny way or delivering funny di- uh, dialogue in a, in a serious way. You know, it's, a, it's that flip-flop. He does it incredibly well. This is just another one of those moments. You're like, oh, snap, this is like a big change for these characters, but, like, you can't help but just kind of laugh at the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them admit they never loved each other, but across the street on a room is a private investigator. Richie and Raleigh hired a PI to learn all that they can about Margot. The report is in. A classic Wes Anderson montage of Margot's escapades plays. Starts smoking at age 12, escapes school age 14, first marriage age 19, Rive, uh, Rive Gouch? Gau- uh, I don't know. Her first lesbian experience. I don't know. <laughs> Rive Gouch, age 21, publicity tour, age 24, Papua New Guinea, age 25, Gypsy Cab, age 26, Crosstown Local, age 27. Irving Isle Ferry, age 30, 22 Avenue Express, age 32. Murray puts the report down and simply asks, she smokes? <laughs> <laughs> that's classic West That's Anderson classic humor. Murray. Oh, that's so good. Richie leaves the room distraught. Raleigh's back at his house in fetal position on the couch, unwilling to play games with Dudley. Richie sneaks into the bathroom. He then, for the first time, takes off the headband and begins to cut off his hair and beard. Flashes of Margot and Richie appear. Then, in the God's eye view of a sink, is shown with hair everywhere. Two arms extended into the frame with blood beginning to go down. Dudley walks into the bathroom to find Richie. Yeah, this suicide, attempted suicide scene is brutal. It's arguably, uh, well, I guess we'll have to, com- I guess we have to compare as we go along, but it's arguably the uh like the darkest he goes in terms of his imagery i don't think he really because he does violence in a unique way it's usually like fun or quick or whatever but this is like a very serious moment he he actually focuses on it and it's because of, like, of the color scheme it reminded me very much of requiem for a dream yeah he's, but uh definitely the darkest thing i think he's done well again we'll have to compare as we go along but it's one of the few moments i think of his career where like he does like i just said uh, doing a serious moment in a funny way or a funny moment in a serious way where this is a completely serious moment that's actually reflected in a very dramatic way in, a, in an effective way and it works um, and yet it's still got that artsiness to it and like you said with the color palette like it's it does feel like Requiem for a Dream with the blue lighting and the, the vibrant red blood but it's um it's a dramatic moment and it plays dramatically and it and it it works you know pretty good uh, Dudley walks into the bathroom to find Richie. The family all gathers at the hospital, with Margot arriving last, asking Dudley, where is he? Dudley, in his simple yet poignant way, replies, who? Chaz is as sympathetic as always, asking Richie, why did you try to kill yourself? Richie says, it is all in the suicide note. In classic Wes Anderson dark humor, Chaz replies, can we read it? Is it dark? Richie says, of course it's dark. It's a suicide note. The, do- <laughs> the doctor then sedates Richie. Of course it's dark. I loved uh, 
Ben Stiller in that moment. It was just like classic. That's classic Ben Stiller. It's so good. Is it's, now um, the time to really be grilling him? Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it's good. The doctor then sedates Richie. While he is under the fa- while he is under the family stays in the waiting room. Raleigh, who has had a long day, drops all formalities with Margot, telling her that she made a cuckold of him and that she nearly killed her brother. Finally, asking Margot for a cigarette and a light, he leaves. Guess you could just smoke in a hospital in 2001. Yeah, that was like pretty crazy to me. I was like, is that even allowed? I, uh, yeah, I don't even know if that's kind of just was, could still fly in certain places or if that's just part of Wes Anderson wanting to just show part of the character just not giving an F. You know I don't know. Maybe, maybe uh, that one. I, it just seemed very jarring to me that you would light up in a hospital. Yeah. Um, Ethelene, learning Margot has been smoking for 22 years, tells her, How long have you been a smoker? 22 years. Well, I think you should quit. In regards to um, you making uh, light of it earlier, it's a very funny delivery. Yeah. <laughs> Henry then walks in, asking Ethelene how he can help. Royal also rushes to the hospital as soon as he hears. As it is past visiting hours, Royal and Pagoda are formulating a plan to climb the hospital pipes, but it does not matter. They see Richie waiting and then getting on a bus. Seeing Richie, Royal notes, well, I have to say he didn't look half bad for a suicide. Attempted anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. This is um, the very blunt... Um, it's dry and dark humor is it's way more in swing with this movie than I think in almost anything else he's done I think we've noted it before with Wes Anderson but the darker he gets the funnier it gets you know like uh, as soon as it hits a really dark moments it just that's when it truly gets funny I think it also like I had just said with the suicide attempt being as dramatically effective as it was it's completely followed up by comedic moments. Ben Stiller asking to read the note. Um, uh, you Kathleen know, ta- saying, yeah. "I think you should quit." I think you should quit. Royal Riley saying, you know, he lighting up bad. in a fucking hotel in a hospital. It, you know? it, it, it's almost like he knows, "Hey, I just went for a really serious moment, but I'm going to bring you back and show you, like, I, I'm still making complete light of the situation. I'm still being uh, giving, going to give you humor. It's it's still a comedy, you know." Um, in a shot straight out of The Graduate, Richie is sitting on the bus, to put it lightly. <laughs> Another graduate thing. He, We've already talked about how many graduate moments are in his movies. Yeah. Um, he went back to the family townhouse. Richie climbs through the window to find Margot in his tent. For the first time, Margot is seen visibly shaken and sad. Richie, for the first time, tells Margot he's in love with her. She feels the same way. They kiss intently, but she leaves the tent saying, I think we're just going to have to be secretly in love with each other, Richie, and leave it at that. Chapter 8. Richie goes to visit Royal and is surprised to see him working the elevator. Royal says he is paying his dues and just hopes someone notices. On the roof, Richie tells Royal about his feelings for Margot. Royal. What does she feel? Richie, confused. Royal, I bet. It's probably illegal. Richie, I don't, I don't think so. We aren't related by blood. Royal, 
that's true, but it's still frowned upon. But then again, what? But then what isn't these days, right? I don't know. That's still pretty fucked up to me. It's yeah. It's yeah. No, it's good. Royal wishes there was something he could say to help Richie, but has nothing. As they talk, Richie's falcon Mordecai is seen. He found Richie. Inspired, Richie tells Royal he needs his help with something. Royal drops everything to help. I also found it funny that, like, they were riding the elevator with the fucking falcon. Like, that's crazy to me. It's so good. Uh, They go to see Eli, whom Richie is trying to go to rehab. Eli notes that, quote, I always wanted to be a Tenenbaum, you know. Royal in the background whispers to Pagoda and himself, quote, me too. Eli calmly admits he needs help, but quickly hails a cab and flees the scene. <laughs> that was pretty funny, too. It's so good. On the road to redemption, Royal meets Bargo at an ice cream shop where he wrongly guesses her middle name. That was also really funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your middle name? What's my middle name? Trick question. You don't have one. <laughs> it, it's Helen. <laughs> Royal then goes to the cemetery with Chaz to visit Rachel, finally giving Ethelene what she wants, a formalized divorce. He even compliments Hank, quote, I didn't think too much of him at first, but I get it. He's everything I'm not. So true. It's so good. I love that they start to wrap it up this way. Yeah. At least with the character, like you said, rock bottom, this is his, you know, going Road into... to redemption. Yeah. Chapter nine. Royal and Pagoda arrive at the townhouse for Ethelene's wedding. Inside, Henry with his son are bonding with Chaz and Richie. Margot is with Ethelene smoking a nicotine inhaler. Eli, wearing tribal war paint, is speeding in his car and crashes into the house. Chaz, knowing Ari and Uzi were playing inside, runs to the crash site. The boys are safe thanks to Royal, who pulled them out of the way. Sadly, Buckley did not make it. R.I.P. Buckley. R.I.P. So sad. Eli, thrown from his car, landed in the house, but without his shoe. Upon seeing him, Chaz chases after Eli. They end up over the neighbor's fence, landing in a Japanese garden. Eli, after learning about Buckley, finally admits he needs help. Eli is lucky Chaz wasn't John Wick. Straight up. Straight up. (laughs) Henry and Royal go to the neighbors to get Eli and Chaz. Henry compliments Royal saying, I don't think you're an asshole, Royal. I just think you're kind of a son of a bitch. (laughs) That's a great line. That is a great line. Royal cheerfully replies, well, I really appreciate that. (laughs) The guests are asking. It really is a great answer. It's just very... You know what I like, and I'll say this for final thoughts, but it's really, I like that they're still the same characters, even though that they've changed. Like, they're still assholes, they're still rude, but, like, they're also a lot more respectful now. But, like, they really, I don't know. I'll say I don't think good. that they're more respectful. I think what it is is, like, now they've all bonded. You know, Royal conceded to his bad behavior, so it, he, his family now knows that his bad behavior is coming from a more genuine place rather than from a place of vitriol you know he can make fun of someone and take a joke now knowing that it's in loving in a loving fashion where before like if he were to have a snide remark it was like what do you mean by that dad you know like fuck you don't give me 
don't give me sass. But now it's like, you know, I can give you shit, you can give me shit, which is truly the foundation of a good relationship. Like I said, their personalities are still there, but it's like there has been something that's changed, even though they're they're still the same people, you know? Yeah. The guests are outside the house with the police and fire department. Eli is confessing to the police. Raleigh and Dudley are playing with fireman helmets. Henry is talking with his son about making this accident a tax deductible. He is an accountant. Ethelene is pulling Ari and Uzi away from the car. Royal buys and gives the boys a Dalmatian. Chaz finally breaks down to his father, saying it has been a tough year. Yeah, it's a bit of an understatement. An an absolute understatement. It's a very 2020-friendly kind of movie in that sense. (laughs) It's been a tough year. Um, on the roof, Margot and Richie are with Mordecai smoking 10-year-old cigarettes. Royal dug a hole for Buckley behind the garden shed and buried him in a canvas stuffle bag. All right, boys. Say a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father. I do. Ethelene and Henry were married 48 hours later in judges' chambers. Margot's new play was produced at the Cavendish Theater. This is my adopted daughter, Elaine Levinson. just under two weeks and received mixed reviews. Yes, can the boy tell time? Oh, my lord, no. No. Raleigh and Dudley went on a lecture tour to 11 universities in the promotion of their new book. Eli checked himself into a rehabilitation hospital in North Dakota. Richie started a program teaching competitive tennis to 8 to 12-year-olds at the 375th Street Y. Royal had a heart attack at the age of 68. Chaz rode with him in the ambulance and was the only witness to his father's death. In his will, he stipulated that his funeral take place at dusk. Finished out epilogue. Royal's funeral is simple and small. No one spoke, quote, but it was agreed amongst the, them that Royal would have found the event to be most satisfactory. Ari and Uzi shoot BB guns into the air. There is a close-up on Royal's, on Royal's tombstone, which humbly reads, quote, Royal O'Reilly Tannenbaum, 1932 to 2001, died tragically rescuing his family from the wreckage of a destroyed sinking battleship. The family leaves the gravesite, Richie throwing a single white rose on the casket. Pagoda closes the fence on the Tenenbaum plot. The end. It's really something. It really is. So, uh, do you want to give me uh, your final thoughts? Give us your final thoughts? I do. I would love to give the folks and you my final thoughts. There's really both a lot to unpack with this movie and yet not a lot at all it's very straightforward in what it wants to say and yet it's at least at this point what we've seen it's it's Wes Anderson's most mature work yet and in a sense it probably still holds as one of his most mature works yet um like I was saying last week about Rushmore feeling like it's closing a book on one chapter and beginning anew, this is kind of like moving forward with the next few chapters, but it's like not in an exciting way. It's kind of in a very morbid and depressing kind of way. Um, But it's the whole commentary on family. It's a whole, 
this whole idea of accepting each other's differences and all that, but it's, um, it's really, um, it's a realistic portrayal of everything captured in a dysfunctional family. Cause that's really what this family feels like. It feels like a dysfunctional family and you realize how many families, you know, uh, maybe even some of our own, like just included in that, could be included in that category is dysfunctional. He captures the, the reality of the chemistry in all of it um, in a, just a fascinating way. And yet it's just funny because like the subject matter feels so serious when you describe it like that. And yet the movie's very funny and it's very cheeky and it's very lighthearted and yet it gets dark. And it's maybe his darkest, most bleak subject matter yet in terms of just capturing people who are, like I've said, are overachievers. It's like, and, and yet they're all these broken, damaged people. It's almost kind of like what Arrested Development does, but in a more um, kind of bleak manner. It's a very, um, I, can't, I can't think of another word. They, it just captures a very morbid sense of reality. And yet there's something special about it because it doesn't end on a, on a downer note, you know? Um, like I was trying to look for the metaphors and it's like even, um, them even Chaz and them losing Buckley it's kind of like this again it's like it's the end of a chapter it's the end of an era it's kind of like now we're we're closing out what uh, the innocence of what was and now we're accepting our realities they're accepting of who they are and I think that's what a lot of this movie is is accepting everyone for their differences and accepting the people for um what they would normally be the behaviors that would normally be frowned upon even the whole idea of uh, Margot hiding her smoking it's like it seems so irrelevant and yet like it's so personal for her that the more the years go on the bigger of a secret it becomes so much of this is just about owning up to what you feel like are your own demons or own mistakes and and this is what Anderson so he goes about in a quirky and funny way and there's something about that that's more touching than a lot of dramas that try and ta tackle the subject matter because a lot of filmmakers do it in a way that's too serious and too dramatic. And yet this continues to be a representation of something that's incredibly relatable. Um, I relate to these characters in, in frightening ways because as I get older and I approach the age of some of these characters, I'm like, wow, this is a little strange how I can feel these feelings of uh, whatever depression or remorse or incest or, you know, I don't have any sisters, so I don't really, know the incest bit but it's just i digress but anyway that's you you see where i'm coming from so um <laughs> coming from an incest area <laughs> a lot of a lot of incest but um uh, but yeah it speaks to me in ways i really didn't think it was and i felt that with this viewing just like it did with rushmore where it was it hit me different so a few weeks back and i guess more than a few weeks uh many weeks ago we did like a list of our quote-unquote perfect movies and I feel like this one falls within that category. You know, this movie is only an hour and 49 minutes, and there's not a moment in it in which I am bored. There's not a moment in it where I think that the film is wasting any time. Every moment builds a character or builds the story and progresses it further. I think that this is arguably a perfect movie it's astounding again to see just how much Wes Anderson grows from movie to movie from Bottle Rocket to Rushmore I felt like there was a progression of a filmmaking stature like the way in which he filmed was just so vastly like 
it was such a leap forward. And I feel like in this one, he takes a leap forward in uh, character and plot development. You know, Rushmore has very good characters, don't get me wrong, but this the characters in this movie just feel like very intimate. You know them and you because you've probably met one or two of them. You know, like you were saying, I kind of felt like when watching this, I kind of felt like my family too, watching my family from the outside as well. You know, not like I said earlier, being family means that you're typically rude to one another because you can be. The point of this movie is what a lot of my favorite sitcoms and TV shows are about. You know, I love the assholes, uh, sitcoms about assholes who do terrible things to one another. But at the end of the day, they're not family because they're necessarily blood related, but they're family because that's who they choose who they want to be with. And at the end of this movie, that's the progression that it went from. It went from people who were like forced to live under the same roof to people who accepted and cared, like they built their family up again. These are people they accept and that they love for the final, you know, for whatever time they have left on this uh, earth. For Royal, it wasn't much time. But uh, I guess that's my final thoughts. Yeah, it's, um, it's good. It's a good, it's a good commentary on family in the way that um, he, he weaves family into almost every movie he does but like he doesn't as we said when the beginning of this episode it's like it, this feels like his most personal and intimate yeah. uh, interpretation of it you can tell occasionally like who he thinks he is on some of these characters but in this one yeah. it just feels like he threw his entire family life into it it's really yeah it's it's it makes me wonder what his actual upbringing was like because like i said it's just some of it the, some of the dynamics here are too real. It just feels way too, not just relatable, but it just feels like you said, like you probably know some of these people. You might even identify with some of them. You know, it's just, you, it just, it does not feel like other films in the sense of it um, feeling like just a fictional work. I mean, he's real, they, the, the characters feel like real people, you know? Yeah. Uh, all right. So I think that concludes our talk on Royal Tenenbaums. You want to give your pick of the week? I'd love to. Um, my pick is going to be um, Little Miss Sunshine, 2006. Um, in talking, yeah, in talking about the comedies of dysfunctional families, it's uh, maybe a little too similar to this, but it's also um, um, I can't get enough of that movie. I think it's just not unlike Tenenbaums, which captures uh, depression in a dysfunctional family incredibly well. It's, it's vastly memorable. There's only a few characters, but you get to know them all inside and out. So it's kind of, um, I don't know, it works for me. It's a, it's a quirky, strange, dark, de depressing depiction. It's just a, a, a rude and just normal-ass family that's kind of just uh, taking a road trip. I mean, it's a road movie, but it's... Um, there's a lot there that I admire. I'm a big fan. I mean, and I, a lot of people were, you know. So. That's a great, great. choice. Yeah. And definitely the first uh, real showing from Steve Carell. Yeah, he's, he's, I think of anyone, he's the most surprising of that. Um, yeah. My only complaint but, about the movie is not about the movie in of itself. It's just that Alan Arkin won the Oscar over um, 
Eddie Murphy for Dreamgirls. He won, Alan Arkin won for that movie? I know he was nominated. Yeah, he won Best Supporting Actor for Jeez. that movie. And I mean, I know Alan Arkin's Alan Arkin. He's great, but he's also just, he just well, plays himself. That's why I don't think he deserved the award. I, you know, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy in Dreamgirls was doing something completely out of his wheelhouse and different, where Alan Arkin was just playing Alan Arkin. But um, I digress. I actually never saw Dreamgirls, but I've, I've heard from everyone who's seen it that Eddie Murphy puts on a great performance. Yeah, he does, but... You know, you haven't seen Hamilton, so what do you know? You you just I, don't like musicals. I don't I don't know anything. I don't know anything about musicals. I don't know anything about Hamilton. I don't know anything about Eddie Murphy. I don't know anything about anything. I don't know. I don't know. I only know what I know of what I know is nothing. There you go. That's the spirit. For my pick of the week, I'm gonna go with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Nineteen sixty six, uh Mike Nichols movie starring uh Elizabeth Taylor and uh I'm blanking on his name, Richard uh, Burton, her husband several times. (laughs) Yep. The movie is just a psychotic, like crazy dinner party gone horribly wrong. And I love it so much. Just watching the dysfunction, you know, because we're talking about a dysfunctional family and this Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is just like the most dysfunctional pair. You know, the... It's about, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but it's about a husband and wife who invite another couple over for an after party. And Martha and George just love playing mind games. It's just the four of them, right? The whole It's just movie. the four of them, the whole movie. That's so, that's so good. That's a great movie. That's very, that movie's very ahead of its time. Oh, I love it. Ed, I actually saw the Broadway show of that. <laughs> Oh, you don't say. It was really good. I, I, you know, anytime, again, anytime I could watch people being horrible together, it's great. That's good. That fits with the theme of this. That's good. That's a great choice. Uh, so I guess that ends this episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? We'll see you next time when we cover uh, Wes Anderson's next film, The Life Aquatic of Steve's. Steve Zizou. Zizou. I was trying Zizou. to do it like a Gil Faison voice. I, under, I, I, do I understand what you're doing. And that should be very interesting because that is, and I'll, we'll save the good stuff, but that's arguably the first time his career takes a bizarre turn that is some people love and some people do not love. So if I could use the pun, it's where it takes a dive. Oh <laughs> boy, we're going there. Jesus. Oh. Uh, as always, you can follow oh, me on man. Instagram at MrPhilmart. As always, you can find Stephen at MrPhilmart. And uh, Stephen, I think it's time we get this page up. All right. I think it's, I think so, too. It's good. We're going to have to work on some kind of page for the people. It's uh, going to be great. For you, the for... people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Incredible. God, last time I make a Dark Knight Rises joke. It's okay. Just insert right. the clip. Insert All the clip. right, everyone. We'll see you next time. Don't let the door hit you with the good Lord split you.